Guys, welcome to another episode of the Combat Veteran Breakdown. Uh, I am your host, Paul, and uh, today we are really lucky. Uh, we have a guest, special guest, uh, Zach Hazard of uh, well, Zach Hazard fame, and uh, <laughs> and uh, Mike Burn Fire. Uh, certainly, someone who has has you know, been the subject of many a popular video online. So I'm, I'm stoked to have you on. Hey, thanks, man. Yeah. So, uh, I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about a lot of things, right? It's it, being a veteran creator is definitely, um, a direction I didn't see, uh, myself doing. Um, so I, I'm curious, like, do you, are you doing this full time? Um, I am I am basically doing this full time now. Uh, I'm working on videos with Mike and uh, also doing like doing streaming, uh, just doing all that full time now. Yeah, and I do still I do still work uh, at a at a gun shop, but that's really only like one or two days a week at this point. Oh, that's cool. That's that's cool that they were able to just like accommodate you for the. A couple of days yeah do you get a discount on ammo yeah <laughs> <laughs> kind of well, joke that that's like the main reason that i'm still working there is just to get a discount <laughs> i mean at this point an ammo discount is is probably more valuable than like actual hard currency pay yeah yeah it, it kind of is so what is it i haven't even like checked prices in probably six months because i just sort of like gave up um what what has been like the hardest or most like in demand type that you guys have seen uh i think 380 of all things like 380 ammo because it's just for a while it's starting to come back at this point but for a while 380 ammo was just uh un unobtainable because every ammo manufacturer was just scrambling to try and make as much nine mil as possible so because of that they weren't allo they weren't allocating as much if any resources to 380 so you just like couldn't you couldn't find it for the longest time when they would produce it they would produce it in smaller amounts um so 380 was really hard to find and then uh i think 40 uh, 40 smith and wesson was also really hard to find it, it's it's at a point now where it's all pretty much come back but unfortunately the prices are still really high uh but yeah yeah that's really that's actually interesting because you'd think you'd think that highly used calibers like nine mil and 45 would be the most sought after but i guess it's like if you have limited raw materials then yeah you're gonna you're gonna produce your highest demand stuff yeah so it's those were still those were still sold out but at least we could get the, at least you would get them in in uh in a like a regular amount yeah that's that is interesting so did you guys see the uh early pandemic like huge run on firearms we did yeah there was that there was a huge run on like buying uh buying stuff and then when um so a bunch of different towns right when right right during the first lockdown there was the the point where a bunch of a bunch of different towns had uh had riots happen in them or a bunch of like the large cities had riots happen in them so 
on top of the 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 pandemic there were also people freaking out about that going out and buying guns so it was like we got hit with like two things one right after the other um for a while we had no we had literally no glocks that were available there was not a single glock handgun that was available basically any gun under seven hundred dollars that was in nine millimeter was gone wow wow did you see a lot of like first time buyers or do you ever see people where you're just like oh i don't i don't think this person has a clue what they're doing with this Column A, column B, yeah. It was it was a lot of first time buyers, which normally I don't. I when I'm working at like a gun shop, normally I don't really have a problem with specifically because then it's it's kind of nice to get a first time buyer in there because they don't really know what to expect. You don't get like you don't get like a a boomer that's been shooting for thirty years that comes in there and is just I know more than you and won't listen to anything and insists that everything has to be in forty five. It's kind of nice getting someone that doesn't know anything because then you can explain to him like, Oh, you'll want to, this is the correct way to hold a revolver. This, you know, like this is how this safety works. This is how this thing works. Um, usually they're more receptive as opposed to someone that's been doing it for a long time. And then again, yeah, we would get also like the kind of people that was just like, wow, you have literally no idea what you're doing. I don't know if I, those people, I, when they would come in and it was basically just like, I want a gun because it's going to make me safe. Um, those kind of people, I would, I would always heavily encourage them to take a class or to just do some practice shooting with like a 22 before they, before they try to buy a gun. Cause it's like, I don't, I don't want to. If I was running a car dealership or if I was running a place that sold motorcycles, I don't want to sell a motorcycle to a guy that has never ridden one before. Yeah. It's just, that's like incredibly dangerous. So, yeah. I, I got a lot of people that came in thinking that owning a gun means that they will be more safe. Which is, I, I have always made the analogy of that's like buying a hammer and then wondering why your house isn't built. Mm, yeah, that's a good analogy. Is just because you have it doesn't mean that you'll be more safe. So, yeah, yeah, it's definitely. I think I think no matter what your stance is, you've you've got to respect the fact that like a, a firearm is a is a is a powerful tool, right? Yeah. Like, and and for for good or ill, and if you don't respect the like power, you know, it's like. It's like buying an indie car, right? Like you, you yeah. have to acknowledge that like you're like you know, you could drive your whole life, but if you've never driven an indie car, like you have to just treat its power and specialization as as something else, right? Yeah. But, you know, that's that's good that at least you were willing to push those people towards, you know, again, at least taking a, a basic course on safety and operation and 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 all that mm-hmm. but uh yeah i always any anytime it's something like that where they've never fired one before um i mean a lot of gun shops people will come in and they'll be like oh i'm thinking about getting this gun this gun and this gun and then the the clerk will just be like oh the most expensive one that's the one that you should buy and they'll basically push them towards that i i always try to encourage people like 
hey, you really should like we we have all of these guns that are available to like to test fire. So I, you know, I highly try all of them. Try all three of them. See which one feels the most comfortable for you. I yeah. generally I don't want to I don't want to push anyone into buying a buying something that they'll end up regretting. Yeah, yeah. And I think I mean I, I at least my opinion is that you know i think there's a lot of upselling in like the firearms world um you know i always when i was uh out in fort riley and i got my concealed carry you had to like take take a pistol out and you had to like demonstrate safe use right so they would do it just like at the range where it was being taught and Mm -hmm. when we did it you know like i actually put in a lot of range time both I was lucky as an MP, right? You you spend a lot of pistol time at the range, but also just yeah. as like a hobby, you know, like some of the other guys in my unit, like that's just what we would do on weekends, right? We're in Kansas. There's not a whole lot else to do. Yeah. Um, and, but I shot, I had a like stock, stock everything, uh, Rock Island 1911 and nine millimeter. And then I had a Bulgarian Makarov. And just to be a troll, I was like, I'm going to do the like safety ch- safety qual with a bulgarian makarov shooting the like stubby little like janky looking nine by (laughs) and all literally that pistol was probably a third of the value of the next cheapest pistol in that class Mm -hmm. like there was just so much aftermarket doodads and nonsense and glow sights and and I outshot every one of those people in that class with that yeah. stupid macro. Cause I'm like, ultimately what most people need is $700 in, in, in handgun at most. And mm. like $300 in ammunition and a thousand dollars in training and instruction. Yeah. But yeah, I th- generally, generally what most people, what most people really need is just like more, more practice with a more practice with their with their specific firearm um i guess like slightly off topic from that that's one of the things that i was always somewhat envious about of uh older militaries and other militaries especially like the the finnish military would when you were issued a rifle um, like the Finnish and Swedish military, when you're issued a rifle, that is that is your rifle. Like you keep that rifle for your entire military career. Wow. Uh, so if you go from if you go from one unit to another unit, you keep that rifle with you. Um, and the advantage of that is it, it it really you you do all of your training with that specific rifle. You really learn like the the individual quirks that that rifle has because every gun is like a little bit different. So maybe. Maybe like this one, maybe this one at zero is slightly different than the other ones. Maybe it has uh, the trigger pull is just a little bit different. You end up learning that one specific one very well. And it's it's kind of like uh, my girlfriend brought this up to me a little while ago that it's there's actually a lot of almost crossover between music or between uh, like guitar collectors and gun collectors. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it is it is kind of like that where like a. Um, each firearm they might be two they might be the exact same one but each one 
is going to be a little bit different. So just like you could have two bass guitars and one guitar is going to sound slightly different than the other one, it's the same thing with like two rifles. So I was always kind of envious of that, of other branches of the military that they kept the, or other, other countries' militaries or older ones, that they kept the same weapon the entire time they were in because it meant that they got a lot of practice with that specific one. Whereas like in the U.S. in the U.S. Army, when you're it, when you get to a unit, you're issued a gun for that unit, and then if you move to a different unit, you have now have another another firearm. So, yeah, I, I was I was jealous of their ability to just have the same one and not have to uh, not have to relearn a bunch of quirks of a new firearm. Yeah, I would be curious. I mean, I remember hearing like I don't know if they're apocryphal stories that when after World War II when there was big waves of of soldiers getting demobbed, that they would give you the option to buy back your grand. I don't know if that's like a myth or if that was true. I've heard that a lot too, and I actually I don't have a grand, but I actually have a US military issue or a US Army issued 1911 and it's not even the A1 it's an original 1911. Oh wow. It was that was built in 1918 and it was given to my great uncle when he got out of the military. But I believe he retired from the army and it's it's in it's in quite good shape so I think it was one of those things of he was relatively high rank and when he got out of the military they were basically like, "Yeah, just go grab a 1911 out of the armory and you can keep that one." That was that was a very different era. <laughs> yeah, that was. I mean, it, he got out. He got out of the military. I want to say. Um, I want to say around either Korea or World War or after World War II is when he got out. So. Wow. Yeah, because I, I I had heard after World War II, they also that's when the CMP was really big. Which was yeah. right, like the CMP again, letting you it's letting you purchase like military surplus rifles, and they had all the training and competitions and stuff. Yeah, and the CMP is definitely not what it not what it used to be. I mean, you used to you used to be able to get stuff, but they would have they would have specific competitions. I don't, maybe it's maybe it's like a confirmation bias. Maybe it's because I haven't really looked into it that much. But from what I what I could remember, they um. They don't do as much like training as they used to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's probably tough because it's like I I feel like again anecdotally like not that I'm like a huge firearms guy, um, but it seems like organizations like the NRA have sort of like taken over that, and some of these other like shooting sports organizations um, are kind of like filling that niche. That is that is definitely yeah that is definitely true. So, no, I said we'd avoid controversial topics, but controversial question. Uh, what do you think is, like, the biggest, I, I always call them tactical, right? Like, kind of gee whiz tactical shit that doesn't really do oh, anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have any, like, special particular pet peeves or annoyances? Um... I get the ones that the ones that really annoy me more than anything else are um, the grip pods. 
So are those like those angled foregrips or No, the grip pods are the ones that they actually issued them like to the army for a while and it's a vertical grip that has a little tiny bipod that pops off. Oh yeah. I remember um, I, that. Yeah, I really don't like those and for some reason they're they're like they kind of came back for a little bit. The only time I actually liked them was when I was in Iraq having one on my on my M4 cuz you could just pop the little bipod out and set it down on the ground right next to you when you were mm. in the chow hall. <laughs> so I'd go to the dining facility and I would just pop out the little bipod on it and set it down. But actually using it as like a combat implement, oh no, it's 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 terrible. It they they break all the time. Um they they always seem to fall apart on me. They're like really they're really long for a vertical grip. Because I basically just use a vertical grip as a hand stop. Mm. Um so they're they're huge for a vertical grip. And the problem is now there's like seven or eight other um, like Chinese companies that are making these grip pods because the actual like berry compliant military issued ones had an aluminum bipod in it or had aluminum bipod legs mm -hmm. and the body was made out of like uh, like a high impact polymer. And now these little like Chinese knockoff ones are the bipod legs are made out of uh, like just not PLA plastic. What am I thinking of? Um, there's made out of cheap plastic, and the body's made out of cheap plastic, so they break all the time. Um, yeah, those are those are pretty bad. I guess like the tactical stuff I see. I not to not to be like not to be gatekeeping, and that you have to buy first spear or like Kifaru gear or just like all this high end gear, but just anything. If you're buying tactical gear made by Condor, it's not going to work very well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just like... It, yeah, it's always funny to me that... One, there's like... There's so many tiers to it, right? There's like knockoff military gear, right? Mm -hmm. So like trying to copy mil-spec stuff, which is always almost always terrible. Right. It almost is always terrible. I've seen a couple things made by like True Spec that aren't terrible. Um what what actually one of the things that a lot of people probably or a lot of people might not know about me is that I'm I'm like a huge geardo. Mm. I I I love just like all kinds of military. Even while I was in the military, I was like I, I always wanted to have like what the what the newest and greatest thing was, probably almost to a fault. Um but yeah, like True Spec has made some stuff that's not terrible. Some of their stuff is good. Some of their other stuff is not great. But then, yeah, once you start getting into Condor or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. And it's always like there's there's the bottom tier of like military mil spec knockoff. Then there's actual like military issue gear, which is which everyone that doesn't know the military seems to think is great. And yeah. once you've been in, you're just like, these are made by fly-by-night manufacturers who yep. are the lowest bidder. And, like, I always think about um, the original Molly 2 Rucks, right? Where they had oh, the yeah. advanced polymer frame where literally oh, if you had 50 pounds and dropped it, it would shatter. Yeah, the whole frame <laughs> would just explode. Oh, my God. I completely forgot about those. But, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Those Molly 2 Rucks did not work great. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, like, the reputation, like, they, they sort of fixed it. And I actually have one as, like, a winter backpacking um, rucksack because there's there's nothing else big enough for, like, w true winter gear. Um, 
But yeah, the original ones were just so janky. And like, it's like these past the military's trials, like n nobody thought to drop it from like your back to the ground. Like, yeah. how did you it's, miss this? It's kind, of, it's kind of incredible when, when, when stuff like that happens. Uh, one of the, one of the things my, one of my friends, um, I remember telling him years ago, because he, he was asking something about like, oh, if it's, if it's a military grade, does that mean it's good? Because, you know, they always do like in, in movies where it's like, oh, it's military grade. This is good stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, usually, no, if it's military grade, that means it was made by the lowest bidder for as cheap as they could possibly do it. Um, so now he, he continually brings that up of, oh, it's military grade. That means it's shit. <laughs> <laughs> Like um, yeah, you're pretty you're you're pretty close, man. You're pretty close. Yeah, you're not you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, yeah, and then I always I always joke like the only two things that the army or the the, the military ever actually got right was the Whoopi and the A10 Warthog. Like, <laughs> those are like the only two things that they ever actually seemed to care about when they built them. Uh. <laughs> yeah, it's like the broken clock. Like it's like despite the army's best efforts, two reasonably well designed pieces of equipment yeah. managed to sneak through. Yep. Um. Oh, what? Yeah. What are some other weird, like tactical things that I see on? There's a. I mean. A... Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was gonna call out the um. The I, it's one of those things that's always on my Instagram is people who have the IR lights on the back of their like helmets. And I'm just like, those are for like aircraft identification. Yeah. Yep. And I'm like, uh, bro, you're at the range. Like you don't have drone support. And even yeah. if you did, it, what what deconfliction do you have to do? <laughs> like, yeah. Why do you have this? What you do you don't you don't need that one on there, my guy. Um like I have I have to to that point, I have like little IR reflective sticker or not sticker, little IR reflective velcro patches that I have like one of those on my helmet. But it's just because I, I still have it. It's I, I had it while I was in the military and I put it on my helmet like as almost more of a lark than anything else. Um but yeah, just like the People running around with like these super expensive, like cry precision blinking lights on their helmet. It's just like, my guy, what are you what are you doing? <laughs> you know the night vision is cool if it if I don't blink in it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guy. All right, man. Um Yeah, usually what I end up seeing for like people trying to be super, super tactical, um, because I I work at a at a gun shop and and firing range. What I usually see for people trying to be tactical is like, um, oh, any of the any of the polymer AR-15s. Oh, um, weird. There's one that's like the ATI Omni Hybrid is a polymer AR-15, and I it it is it is not good. I granted I this is a relatively small sample size. I haven't field tested extensively, so ATI please don't come after me. Um but every all the ones I've seen have basically just like fallen apart almost immediately. 
the only exception I will make for like the polymer ARs is the I think KE Arms makes one that they did for like uh, forgotten weapons or in range TV. That's the um, I think it's based on like the Cav fifteen lower. Those ones are actually not bad, um, but it's it's because the major the major stress point on an AR fifteen receiver is where the buffer tube meets the actual receiver block. Mm. And on the ATI polymer lowers, that is basically just a steel insert that's put into the polymer mold. Um, so, like, that can... or It's not even a steel insert. I think it's an aluminum insert. So that can just basically easily, very easily break out of the out of the receiver. Oh, yeah. And so is the appeal just, like, savings on weight? I, I guess maybe it's also that it's cheap. It might be that it's cheap, but I don't... I, don't, I think the polymer ones aren't really that much cheaper. I think they're, like... Well, no, now they're probably a bit cheaper because I think now they're probably like seven or eight hundred bucks. But originally they were they were like a little bit cheaper than a standard AR fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean again, I don't like begrudge like you said, like a the guitar collector analogy I like, because it's like I don't begrudge you if you're a collector and you just love to have a bunch of bunch of shit, right? Like Yeah, you know if you like honestly if what um i know a lot of people a lot of people will when it comes to like firearms and costs they will specifically be like oh don't ever buy a high point handgun and what i what i usually tell people is if you if you need a handgun like if you absolutely need one and your budget is under $300 then yeah get a high point like it's going to work for the most part it's going to do what you need a gun to do. It will throw lead in that direction. It's just not, it's just not great. Yeah. So, and I, I, I have talked to other people that actually collect several or collect like a bunch of different firearms. And there are some people that are just like, yeah, I bought high, I bought like six high points cause I thought they were funny. And it's like, yeah, okay. You know, whatever. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what other what other weapon can you like spray paint, you know, hot pink or or whatever, um, yeah. or, you know, or, or not feel bad about it, not experience one iota of guilt if not a high yeah. point. So, what do you think is again to to stay on my my favorite topic of tactical larpurators, um, like the 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 most common like things you see at the range of people trying to train tactical um versus like what's the training people actually should do at the range uh, um what i oh man so what i usually see out of out of people that don't that like come to the range and just do like their their super tactical stuff is they're not they're not practicing any of the fundamentals of like pistol marksmanship and I, I'm I'm specifically talking about like pistol marksmanship mm. they don't practice any of the fundamentals of pistol marksmanship like maybe they're just one handing the pistol or they're they're like they're like teacupping it like it's 1940 something or they're putting their thumb right behind the webbing of their hand so the slide is like bonking so the slide is just ripping into their thumb every single time they shoot it i mm. see it's a lot of people not practicing the fundamentals of of marksmanship before um before they're trying to go to the range and become john wick uh 
I feel like a lot of the time it's um a lot of time it's oh well I bought this pistol which means that therefore I am now good at shooting because I paid a lot of money for a handgun. Yeah, yeah, I think that's I I, I think that's like endemic. Um I just remember when I I did when I was in grad school like 2 years in a reserve unit and this former our our like HHC company commander was actually uh, a former AT Alpha, and he was just like you know, you know my 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 wife put her foot down right. She's like regular jobs, re- regular assignments only, um, and he's like this was this was the one closest to my work. Um, but we went to the range and did pistol quals, and I watched this dude for probably an hour. At I'm gonna say a quarter of your natural speed, draw the pistol, extend it, fire like one or two shots, put it on safe, holster it, draw it again. Just like, just like, like getting in reps in the gym at Mm -hmm. a quarter of the normal speed. And I'm like, again, this is like an 18 alpha, sorry, uh, uh, a special forces major for people that aren't. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so the, the dude had probably been around a range a lot. And he was just like doing the 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 shooting equivalent of like the bench press, right? Just the most basic thing, but just doing it perfectly and just getting reps. It was it, it was honestly like a cool reminder of somebody who's like at the top of their game in terms of like probably small arms proficiency, and still just seeing him be like M nine one round draw fire safe holster. Yeah, it is, and it's it is very important to do that stuff. I get we get a lot of people that come in that um that you know just like want to just punch holes in paper, and that's that's totally fine. It's just important. I think it's important for people to remember that um you do have to like keep practicing fundamental things in order to continue uh continue being good with firearms. It is it is a perishable skill. It's something that you can you can lose if you don't practice it enough. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what do you think is like the future of like either military firearms or firearms in general? Like what, if there's trends you see, like, yeah, I don't know. What do you you think the future looks like? I'm not sure I can, well, I can definitely say for one thing that it's, I, I feel like within the next 20 years, basically every single handgun is going to have the option of putting a red dot on it. Unless you specifically want only iron sights. But I feel like, I I feel like handgun or red dot mounted handgun mounted red dot sights is kind of like the future for, for handguns. Interesting. Um, It's once I, what I, I was initially hesitant to to try those once I started shooting handguns with red dot sights on them it's so much easier than having to line up iron sights for me specifically it made me it made me faster with with handguns and it made my tra- my time transitioning from one target to another one drop by a a decent amount um and that's not to say that you should you know like just stop using iron sights on handguns uh, but like it made it a lot faster for me specifically. It's just it's just an improvement. It's just like a it's a it's another thing that you can put in your toolbox 
to use uh, with with handguns. Yeah, that's that's interesting because again, I I think of sort of unlike rifles, right, where the iron sights, you know, are are it feels like designed for shooting at, at you know targets hundreds of meters away. Handguns are only you know fifty meters. It's really all you can ever hope to meaningfully engage and that red yeah. red dot still makes such a huge difference mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm always interested in sort of like yeah what do you think like the military like if you could see the military or militaries 20 years in the future like what do you think their small arms look like what do you think do you think they'll change the way that they're implemented? Like, what do you not, think that'll look like? I'm not entirely sure. Um, I know that there, I know that there's the, the, N, what is it? The NGSW program that they're currently working on, like a new replacement for the, um, for squad automatic weapons. Um, I think they're trying, they're trying to replace like the standard issue rifle or the, the M4 carbine with other stuff. So I'm not entirely sure what they're, what they're going to be going with. I, I don't know. I feel like they're, I feel like for light machine guns, the future is probably going to be some type of, maybe not necessarily caseless, but like a semi caseless ammunition, kind of like the, the Marines had experimented with the LSAT and, and it being a semi caseless ammunition or like a polymer cased ammo. Um, I kind of feel like it's going to be something like that. I think the army is going to be going to a 6.5 caliber at some point in the future. Hmm. I feel like they're going to, they might start moving away from 5.56 into 6.5 because I, I, honestly, they've been using 5.56 for 50 oh, since, since basically 63, right? Yeah. So, how many years would that so be? So forty I'm, years I'm in two thousand three, fifty, sixty years, basically, just just a little shy years, of sixty. I I I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that five five six has been a military, or has it been the army's, or yeah, the army's standard issue cartridge for longer than any other cartridge in history. Um, so it's like. I, I feel like they're they're due to switch to something else, but I don't I don't know exactly what that's going to be. Um, yeah, it's tough to say what the unmet need is because. And, and oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say because it's it, you know it's it's always to me driven by when it's done properly, right? It's driven by the needs of of the conflict, right? Like World mm -hmm. War One, you or pre-World War One, like there was an expectation that it would be on large open fields of battle where, you know, you might be slinging rounds at a large enemy formation a thousand meters away. Like that was actually yeah. a conceivable thing an infantryman could do. And then in World War Two, they realized that like, okay, we're carrying around big, powerful, heavy rounds, but these engagements are always inside of 300 meters. And so they said, okay, well, we, we only need a round that's going to be accurate up to that point and anything beyond that is, is sort of gravy and yeah. i'm just curious to to think about like what the next big conflict will expect from its you know gun toters and if it's right. going to be 
even shorter distances like more is it going to look like like fighting in baghdad right house to house city to city right fight where people are or is it going to look like the conflict in ukraine right where it's like almost back to trench warfare neither side yeah. wants to use their aircraft they just ground them and it's dudes in trenches pointing at each other and it's it's interesting to me i i don't um i don't remember what the exact phrase is but it's basically like the every every military prepares for the last war it was in and then is woefully unequipped for the next war it gets into yeah it's 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 like and like you were saying in world war in world war one basically every military was preparing for it was world war one was the end of napoleonic warfare and the start of modern warfare so every military had been preparing for more napoleonic style warfare and then it wasn't that world war ii was they were preparing for more of world war one and it ended up being more urban less um it was it was wasn't trench warfare anymore anymore Mm -hmm. um the vietnam war was like a guerrilla war which they the army was not at all or it was a war of insurgency which the army was not at all prepared for because again they were still they were still going into thinking that it was going to be like major force on force battles like world war ii and it it wasn't yeah Um, where you could break an enemy with like a decisive tank charge and you're like yeah they're they're just not gonna be there yeah and it's just it's not gonna happen anymore so it's it's gonna be interesting what the next one will what the next like major war will be or if there even is a next major war because it kind of seems like everything lately for the last 30 or so years has basically just been small guerrilla warfare tactics and uh um it's been like smaller guerrilla warfare tactics and, and wars of insurgency, which are, uh, as has been proven multiple times, very, very difficult to win. So. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think about like in World War One, to go back to your example, the uh, BEF, right, the British forces, they were really experienced at their version of counterinsurgency, right? They had so mm-hmm. many conflicts throughout the empire and but a lot of them looked like insurgency wars. And I always sort of, I don't know, worry is too strong a word because it's too hypothetical for that. But I'm curious because like ultimately that experience like didn't really help the BEF when it became a war against another industrialized like peer opponent in Germany. Mm -hmm. They just just didn't fight like, like, uh, you know, in, insert colonial war here, you know, the, yeah. Africa or in India or Afghanistan. And I think that really like threw their commanders for a loop because their commanders were like, oh, conflict is conflict. But but if you've seen one war, you've seen one war. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I if I if I remember correctly, um, like the British military was the only military at the time that had a purely professional military they were the only one that their military was actually people that wanted to be there every other military with the exception of i think the united states who was um at the start of world war one who was a uh uh neutral oh yeah yeah um but every other military was a conscription military so it's very 
in World War One, I, I think they ended up losing in their first battles like a lot of their professional military, and they started having to go back to conscription or uh, uh, like a, a draft. Yeah, yeah. I remember reading that. Um, have you ever read Guns of August? Uh, I'm familiar with it, but I haven't read it. It it actually like it's a history of just the first ninety days of World War One, and and a little bit of like background leading up to it. Um, but man, it is it was written in like the sixties, but it is like a great read, like especially for like. I'll have to look know, into that one. Yeah, like sometimes I get these like histories written by historians, and I'm just like, buckle up, this is going to be somebody's thesis, yeah. and uh, and this was not like it. Like it was actually like really accessible really good a good blend between like good writing and like actual like deep factual looks at sort of how these militaries thought war was going to go and then what actually happened and sort of how they dealt with the situation because i guess i never realized i think of world war one as being like trench lines advancing yard by yard and but that but it was the first three months of the conflict that the the Germans took over like half of France mm -hmm. and the, like you said, the British had like most of their volunteer force wiped out. And it was just like a total scramble before things calcified into these, uh, these trench lines that never went anywhere. Yeah, it was, it's, it's very interesting. If you ever, uh, did you ever watch the, um, the YouTube series, The Great War, where he did a week by week. He did for the entirety of, for the 100th anniversary of World War One. he did a week by week breakdown of what happened that week in World War One. No, um, I had no idea. It was, a it was a very good YouTube channel. I believe he's still doing other stuff, but it was just called The Great War on YouTube. Um, the, you can still find the playlists. I believe they're still, they're still on his channel. Um, he has a playlist that I think is just every week what happened in World War One, and it's a lot of videos, and every week is about like ten minutes long. Um, but it was months; it was months in World War One before anybody really kind of knew like what was what the hell was going on. So it very much was a lot of oh well, we'll just we'll just march in there and just you know go through everybody, and it'll be it'll be easy to go through and just get their get their entire army to rout and then it just very quickly devolved into trench warfare because they nobody was nobody knew that's what that war was going to be like yeah yeah I, again it's just like there's sometimes where in history where it's like technology sort of passes by tactics and strategy you know and nobody realizes it until two armies with all the technology at hand mm -hmm. go at it and, well, and part of oh go ahead oh uh part of the the what happened in world war one is because everybody was very everybody was still basically set in napoleonic warfare um of i think germany was really the only country that hadn't that had embraced the technology of of the time but even so most most they were not uh they were not exempt from napoleonic warfare which was basically you get guys with really long rifles that can shoot you know 1200 yards or whatever 
you put a three foot long bayonet on the end of it and then you just march towards the enemy and hopefully your bayonets are longer than theirs so that you can just keep poking at him and get him to run away. Because that was actually the goal of, of like early Napoleonic warfare combat was not to destroy the enemy force. It was to get them to rout. Mm-hmm. It was to basically have longer bayonets and have more firepower so that they go, ah, we've got to leave. And then they have to like relocate somewhere. And now you've taken that whole area. Um, but it was very, it was very interesting, like watching the breakdown every of every week, what had happened there, and seeing, uh, seeing how how very quickly everything changed. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to me just to see, like, because I think about Napoleonic warfare, where you know Napoleon was was sort of the innovator, right? Because he was the one who was like, "Hey, I'm going to have this nation state where you're defending like the French." The, the like it's French people that we're conscripting or drafting. We'll give them like basic marching and rifle drill training. Mm-hmm. And then I'm just going to have an army that's just so much bigger than everyone else's who's, who was relying on a professional fighting force that he was just like, he could like throw away lives, right? Like he yeah. bragged at one point, he's like, I can lose 5,000 men a day, which is funny because a hundred years later at like Verdun, it was like 50,000 men a day. Yeah. on all sides but yeah at the time like throwing away five thousand trained soldiers was like you won't have an army in 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 a week but napoleon yeah. could just find more people and it's just like the the sort of being the underdog in a conflict or a, an upcoming conflict like forces a country to find new solutions mm-hmm. right and napoleon for all his tactical brilliance like he was outnumbered by every other european power they were all monarchies. They were all family with each other, and they all wanted to like crush France. And so he just had to innovate. And I think you're right. Even the Germans sort of had to innovate in World War One because they were, hey, there's enemies on both sides, so we're going to use this like newfangled like industrial science. Like they actually had pre-designated train cars for every single regiment i think it was down to like the company level they're like company b is going to be on train car one two three four five and you're going to go this far on the trail or on the rail and then you'll offload at this point and you'll march and it was like again it was an hour by hour timetable that they were they were expecting because they're like we have no choice we have enemies on both sides of us we have to crush the french in two weeks or else Russia will mobilize their army and destroy us on the other side of the front. So it's, uh, at the time, again, it was like a huge innovation to be like, okay, to take the things you use to build cars in a factory, timetables and exact procedures and, and a highly detailed plan and implement it into military science. And that's yeah, very, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't know that they were that, um, it, it makes sense that out of out of all the countries that Germany would be the ones that are that are that uh, mechanical and how they how they even do their logistics. Uh, but I didn't realize that 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 their logistical operations were that uh, that like incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at the time, like some of the war reporters are just like awestruck because they would have even um, horse drawn like mess trailers which again was like blew people's minds at the time where you would have Mm -hmm. this like like the soldier's food was being cooked as it was being pulled 
you know, kind of right behind the front lines so that soldiers wouldn't have to stop for long and prepare a whole meal. They could just eat and go and get back on the march. On the same topic of that, it's I I, um, I have a lot of people I get asked occasionally what my favorite camo pattern is. Mm. Um, because like, like I said, I'm a, I'm a huge I'm a huge gear though. I like camo patterns. I think they're super interesting. And I one of the answers that I that I give sometimes for favorite camo pattern is actually the World War One Feldgrau, which isn't really even a camo pattern. It's just gray. But the reason I consider it a camo pattern is because it was the, up until that point, every country, like the U.S. was wearing just like all khaki, um, which is a little, they were wearing like all khaki. Um, the, the British, I think the British again were kind of like an all khaki or not even an olive green, like they were wearing other colors. The French were still wearing red, were wearing blue jackets and, and red striped pants. Um, but the Germans going into, into World War One actually had designed this gray color, which Feldgrau means like field gray. Mm. It, they designed this gray color that in, in an actual battlefield, um, when there was like all this fog from, uh, just like all the guns being, or all the different firearms being fired and explosions going off. And just even like fog of early mornings, that that gray color made it so that it was almost impossible to tell where individual soldiers were at like a distance. It made it really hard to pick them out individually. So in my mind, Feldgrau was like the, the first actual camo pattern, even though it's not actually a pattern. And it's just another another one of those in, innovations that they had like come up with. That's I I thought was very interesting. Yeah, that is that is cool. I didn't know that. Um, yeah, but that makes that makes perfect sense, right? Especially if you know you're going to be fighting. You know, there's no there's no Germany has no seaports, right? So it's like you're never mm -hmm. going to fight in the jungle, never going to fight in the desert. You're going to fight France on your uh, west, and you're going to fight Russia on your east. So you're like. The furthest you could ever be fighting is basically Paris and Moscow. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, gray is like the perfect color for that sort of environment, you know? A little tundra, was, maybe a little forest. I think there was a, there was an article that was written by a war reporter that was talking about watching the Germans march and just like this this never-ending line of of Ger kind of the same thing about like the the marveling at the the horse-drawn field kitchens and all this other, all of these other innovations that they had, and he was specifically talking about the um, the German uniforms. How once they got like a hundred yards away from him, it was just a mass of gray. He couldn't tell how many soldiers there were anymore, and it was just like they just kept marching on into the nighttime to the point that you would look out of a window and just you would hear them marching, and all you would see is just a mass of gray moving. And like sparks coming off of the hobnails on their boots as they would march across cobblestones. And that was it. Like it was just really, it was difficult to pick out an individual soldier. Wow. I mean, that must have been wild just to see like, you know, uh, 300,000 soldiers pass by. Just like people don't appreciate sometimes like the scale of like 300,000 people in one place at one time. Where it's just like, yeah, they it would take them twelve hours to march by if they're marching, 
you know, it, it, for a breast. And it's just like, yeah, it had to be surreal just to like see that, you know, to see that many people pass through your city or town. I think one of the, one of the, if, um, if I recall correctly, one of the war reporters basically described it as his, an initial impression of absolute awe that slowly turned into an impression of, of like, of horror at just how many there were. Yeah, I mean, it's just it because I think like the at the peak of the Iraq War, we had a hundred thousand soldiers in the entire country or service members, mm -hmm. you know. And I think it was the same for Afghanistan. It might have been like one twenty eight or something, but like Some, that was in that, yeah. But that was like the peak, and that was throughout the entire country. And to just have you know, I I, I kind of want to actually Google it to be honest. I'm like curious. Oh, I can't. Let's see how many like soldiers were in the initial German invasion of World War II, World War One. Uh, do you mind if I do you mind if we take a quick break? I gotta use the bathroom really. Oh quick. yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Five million by the way. Five oh, million. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, okay. it is it is insane. Alright, um All right. I will be I will be right back. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Okay, sorry about that. Yeah, no no worries. No worries. Um So, yeah, actually I think we are just about at an hour. Um So, I don't know, was there anything else uh anything else you wanted to uh talk about? Um did you what um did you have a whole lot of experience with forward support companies while you were while you were in? Uh so believe it or not, we I did a little bit, but MP companies are actually structured in such a way that they have a lot of their assets sort of in-house. So like our company had a whole um, like motor pool section. We had an entire medical section. We had um, an armorer, uh, or I think we had two or three armorers. Um, our own like, you know, cooks and field kitchen section. Mm -hmm. um, so I think MP companies are just meant to be a little more modular. Hmm. And so we would connect to forward support companies. I don't even know if we did that. I think we would go straight to like the, I want to say it was the LSA to get like the next level of maintenance or to order yeah. parts. Um, yeah, there was no, but there was no like battalion maintenance assets. There was like, one person on staff who was like a battalion maintainer. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons why MP units deployed as companies is because you could just drop them and they could like play quietly by themselves without too much like support drama. Um, huh. Yeah, that is interesting. I wonder if that'll be. I wonder if maybe that's where they got the idea for a forward support company. If MP companies have always been like that. Yeah. From from what I understood when I when I first got to Fort Polk in two thousand and five, um, basically I was in one of the first forward support companies. It was something that the army was trying out, and I don't actually know if they're still doing forward support companies. I'm not sure if it was kind of a failed experiment. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm trying to think if I've 
seen one. I may ask my brother. He's he's still in the reserve, so he may know if the army still keeps okay. them on MTOs. If they're still doing forward support companies. That's yeah. interesting, because I think like if if you had a lot of units, if you had an infantry unit that operated basically the same way as a forward support company does, or I'm sorry, if you had an infantry company that operated the same way as like how how you were describing the MPs operate, I feel like that would be a that would be a very versatile unit that you could kind of just drop anywhere and have them just go about their business. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly how we were utilized when I deployed. So they initially put us in, um, they initially dropped us in a FOB, um, like sort of with another unit that another unit was running. But then within a couple of weeks, they were just like, okay, we're going to have you open a new base from scratch with like no attachments, no additional units. Jeez. And they're just like, you guys got your own mechanics, so no worries. You'll fix your own generators. You'll run your own plumbing. Like, and and someone at some headquarters somewhere like may have oversold like how much self-sustaining MP companies can do. Because like we did not have plumbers. You know, we we did not have yeah. a carpenter, right? Like, but we figured it out. And I think that's also sort of like when you have your own maintainer sections and, and your own sort of maintenance in-house like somebody can work a saw you know yeah we had when i was when i was in iraq we had uh because we didn't have a carpenter in our in our unit the, the closest thing we had to that was welders um in our forwards which we had like three welders but because i was in a forward support company and the majority of our company was was vehicle mechanics um, or the, my platoon was vehicle mechanics. They, um, the, the motor pool that we had, or like the large garage where we could work on vehicles, uh, they ended up building some like barracks in there for some of the, for some of the, um, like the more, the more senior mechanics to basically mm. stay there so that they could. Because we, we would get vehicles in it, like, all times of night. Oh, they would, yeah. Like, they would get ready to do a mission and discover one of the trucks. It was There was something wrong with it, so they would just drive the... They would drive the truck down to the motor pool, swap it out for another one, and then people have to work on this truck, and it's, like, 2 in the morning or whatever. Um, but, yeah, they basically... To get to the point that I was trying to make, they, they basically built out of... We didn't have a carpenter, so they had to build, like, an actual small barracks inside this garage. Wow. Yeah, I so. mean, just to, like, figure it out, nonsense of, mm -hmm. at least Afghanistan sounds like Iraq was the exact same way, is always, like, I mean, I guess that's, like, a pervasive theme throughout all conflicts, right? But, like, yeah, yeah just that, like, sense of, like, okay, like, yeah, you gotta, you, you have to turn the, the FOB they assigned us, you may be able to Google, it's called FOB Shinwar, and it it was a bombed out British castle that the Soviets were like, what a defensible position. And then they built their barracks there and then they were bombed out. And then we were like, wow, what a defensible position. <laughs> and so they were like, <laughs> oh, no. yeah, I had to actually, a rumor started because so many other invading forces had been massacred there. Uh, I actually had to like 
brief my soldiers because there was a rumor going around that we were moving to like their version of like Gettysburg, like like oh, the place geez. where the invaders were defeated every time. And we're like, no, no. I had battalion look into it. They assure us. I asked the Terps. They assure us this is not their Gettysburg. This is oh, not a, no. a, a symbol of defeating like like foreigners. It just it just happened to have been occupied by every other occupying force that ended up losing. Yeah. Um, but you know th those Russians built some resilient barracks. All we had to do was yeah. change the roofs and and put on new doors and stick an AC unit in them, and we were we were in action. Um, not not as easy to defend as you'd think because yeah i think since it was constructed uh, a bunch of people built like a small it wasn't even a village it was like an offshoot of the existing village but like right next door so like oh, you didn't geez. really have standoff distance yeah and there was a hole in the wall we couldn't repair so we defended it by putting out a lawn chair and having a fully geared soldier in the lawn chair whose only job was to guard the hole in the wall <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, we even made their call sign hole in the wall. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I was at um, I was at. You, I'm sure you can look it up. You can actually find it on Google Maps. I think I did that <laughs> on stream at one point. But I was at Fob Falcon in Iraq, which was just south of Baghdad. Um, so was that um, one of like the mega fobs? It was one of the larger ones. Yeah. Um, it was one of the larger ones in, in Baghdad. And so um, would you guys have like, um, I, I only know a couple of the really bad routes in Baghdad, like route Irish between, what was that? The one big fob in the airport. Um, we were, we were relatively close to Biop. Um, we were, uh, I, I want to say it was actually just a couple miles, like straight shot or like as the crow flies. Um, mm. so we were pretty, pretty close to biop. I forget what the, what the major routes near us were. Um, oh yeah, it's on Google maps, but it's just called, it's called base Falcon now. Um, that's good. It's still operational, you know? Um, apparently it had been... It had been a, I think, like an Iraqi National Guard base ah, beforehand. But it's if you if you look at it, you can kind of see where the wall is that goes around it, and it's just there's people living right next to it. So we had um, one of, <laughs> one of my favorite stories is that there was there's a major highway that runs right next to Fob Falcon. Um, it's just like Baghdad road. It's one of the major roads that's right there. Oh yeah. And, I've, I've got it up. Yeah. And every day when I would, when I would be walking from my barracks to work, I would walk by a part, uh, walk by basically where a wall was. And every day I would hear the, the Dukes of Hazard horn coming from the <laughs> highway. Cause I would walk by it roughly the same time. So usually it was somewhere, somewhere along that I would hear like the Dukes of Hazard horn. And one day I happened to be outside the wire at roughly the same time. And have you, have you ever seen the movie Euro trip? No. Um, there's a, there, there, at one point they go to somewhere in Eastern Europe and this dude has like, it's just this weird former Soviet country, goofy looking car. Mm. He's painted like the Dukes of Hazard car. <laughs> 
And I am I am not joking. I swear to God, that guy must have either bought the car from that movie or modeled it after it because it was just this goofy-looking old Soviet car blasting down this road in the middle of Iraq with the Dukes of Hazard logo painted on the side of it. Just <laughs> just every single time he comes driving down. Oh my God! It blew it blew my mind just seeing this seeing this dude with the little. The little Dukes of Hazard horn on his car in the middle of Baghdad, just so confusing. Yeah, there's so many cars that I was just like, I mean, for us in Afghanistan, it was the jingle trucks. Yup. Oh my God. There, there were a few of those. There weren't as many. I didn't see as many, but there definitely were like little trucks like that in Iraq. Dude, the north side of our AO was Highway 1, the, the, the ring road, and specifically that connects um, the port of Karachi through Pakistan, through mm-hmm. the Khyber Pass to Kabul, right? So the logistics road for the country. And you would think, I mean, it was like an endless line of jingle trucks just every day. And for, for people that don't know, jingle trucks are when you have a like a like a, you know, usually older model Peterbilt cargo trucks or fuel trucks, but mm-hmm. they are decoratively adding tiny little chains and multicolored like streamers and painting just all over the truck, both to like personalize it, but they actually jingle as they drive and like yeah. chime. It's so bizarre. And then to make it even more surreal, the Taliban had started using sticky bombs on fuel trucks because they knew we had the U.S. contracted fuel trucks for all of its fuel operations. And they would drive to a central point and then get distributed out. And so what they would do is have people on motorbikes drive up behind the fuel trucks and stick little like sticky explosives on there. And then when they went off, they would ignite all the fuel. The truck driver would panic and try to drive faster, creating a just two mile long, like char burned out strip where just every like roadside sand had been burned down and the whole road. I mean, it was like, like it wouldn't it like, People wouldn't get killed because the fuel doesn't like explode, right? It's it burns. Yeah, it just burns. But again, a lot of people like lost their roadside stands and stuff. But the 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 solution that the drivers came up with was to hire randos with AKs to sit on the top of the jingle trucks and just watch their the backs the entire time. Oh, and no. so, Right, you're just like, you would just be driving on a patrol and you would see a fuel truck with a dude on an AK sitting on the back and just be like, this is normal. This is just a regular, this is just a Tuesday. This is, this is yeah, this is Tuesday. This, there was, um, on, similar to that, I was leaving, I, I don't remember what cop it was, but I was leaving one of the small cops in, in, uh, in Baghdad and we pull out of the vehicle, and it's this... I, I'm never going to forget this. It was just such a weird... It gave me such weird cognitive dissonance of just what I was looking at, because we left the building. There's a guy standing in the street that is basically, like, he's he, he doesn't have a shirt on. He's bleeding from somewhere, and he's just, like, yelling at... He's, he's bleeding from somewhere, but he's just yelling at another guy. So it's just these two guys yelling at each other. There's a garbage can that is on fire, and five feet away from that, there is 
there's a guy putting a car cover on his 2006 Ford, and I was I was there in 2007. He's putting a car cover on his 2006 Ford Mustang. What? And I was just like, how did you get that here? What what is even happening right now? What am I looking at? It's just like, he's in the middle of a war zone. I can hear gunfire coming from, like, two streets down, and he's just like, yep, gotta put this car cover on my Mustang. I'm Fat, so- fast and furious. <laughs> just okay. Wow. Brand new, brand new, like, blue, lightning blue 2006 Ford Mustang. I'm just... I mean, wow. just... I can't even think. Like, on one hand, I'd be like, surely that dude must know he's going to get robbed or killed for his mustang but maybe it's so brazen that he's just like they will know only an idiot would leave a powder blue mustang just out on the street maybe they'll just be like the only person who would do this is someone with incredible protection like this dude must must like yeah i wonder if he's just on that he's just on that vlad the impaler tick where he's like yeah i can just leave a crown sitting outside and nobody will steal it because i'll murder him (laughs) okay (laughs) just just the ultimate flex just to be like i can own this i can park this in the street in iraq and none of you peasants will dare touch it yeah it was it was it was baffling um that was that was one of those moments that I just I kind of couldn't believe what I was seeing and it was just yeah I mean I remember I never saw a car like that uh, but I do remember that there was a district governor that we worked with who I was I was ordered because I really hated this dude to make nice with um, and he stole so many agricultural like so much agricultural aid it was like comical so like we would go into his his um uh district center which absolutely was not a palace um and it it was his personal palace and Mm -hmm. we would walk by bags and bags of of wheat meant to like as like food relief uh stacked up in his house that said usaid on it um oh geez and again I like reported it to hire and hire was like, you have to make nice with him. He's a very important person. I'm like, okay. Then he takes us to his backyard garden, right? Which of course is a beautiful, uh, has a beautiful seating area surrounded by groves of orange trees. And immediately behind him are 15 tractors, like, like, like John Deere tractors meant obviously not for for him. Yeah. Yeah. And he would just sit there, like, munching on his orange grove in his, like, palatial garden in a district center in a war zone with 15... That was his flex. To just display before the Americans 15 stolen John Deere tractors that he knew we would never be allowed to do anything about. And I'm just like, are you... I, I had to be repeatedly ordered to be like, you have to be nice to... Yeah. <laughs> I can't even... I can picture him, but I don't remember his name. And he knew it, too. Like, he would, yeah. like, give me shit about being, like... Because I would tell him, you know, like, those aren't your tractors, dude. You get, you, you have to give them to, to at least farm them, at least sell yeah. them, so that I don't have to look at them. And he would just be like, don't make me call my friend the 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 commander of the PRT. And I'm like... 
I'd like to believe there's no way that a U.S. soldier would take your side over mine regarding obviously stolen tractors, but I know 100% that person would take your side over mine. Oh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think the Mustang is a cooler flex by far. (laughs) Yeah, just that was that was just that was insane. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's another like super super flex i ever saw i mean the the thing with afghanistan is like everybody knew that the u.s was was going to be gone sooner or later and so it was like Mm -hmm. musical chairs right your goal was to hoard as much stuff as possible because whoever kept it when the u.s left whoever had it got to sell it and so like we would have a connex full of probably i'm gonna say ten thousand dollars worth of like maybe more yeah, almost certainly more. Uh, several hundred like IBAs, like the interceptor body armor. Um, several hundred like ACHs, all for Afghan police, and you know a bunch of other assorted like like tactical equipment. And uh, those dudes literally cut off the U.S. lock, bought their own lock, stuck it on the container, and the police chief was just like, "There's nothing in there." And, uh, <laughs> and for like six months, I was like there's there's definitely something in there like they wouldn't tell us and finally i'm like this container says us my command you know my commander was like you can't you can't go raiding their stuff it's their police station <laughs> and then i'm just like bring the bolt cutters <laughs> and so we just like didn't ask permission i was just like we're gonna play dumb and we cut the lock and we just see like all this brand spanking new gear for the police who were patrolling oh, in like flip-flops and we're just like you you mf'er like you dirtbag also i'm like you had six months dude like you couldn't sell it to anybody yeah like whatever and then see see what it costs to buy an iba uh uh you know off of like i don't even know if you can buy interceptor body armor off of uh like the market now the free market i don't know i I, i've seen i i see a lot of like mitch helmets and stuff on on ebay yeah Um, i'm sure you probably can yeah i'm punching into google now for shopping we had um did you have one of those like big eye in the sky blimps over your over your fob we couldn't even get uh plates to eat our food off of so no no we we didn't have anything Okay, so we had we had one of those big like eye in the sky blimps over our fob. Um, I forget what the actual name of it was, but it's the big like helium helium filled blimp or hot air filled blimp or whatever the hell it is. Um, and the the running joke that I had with one of my one of the people that I worked with is that we both hated that blimp because they this blimp cost millions of dollars to manufacture and God only knows how much money to send to Iraq and put it up over our base and maintain it and have soldiers man it, like, or man the computers on it. And what they would use it for is to look inside the base to make sure that nobody was speeding in Humvees. Mm. So that no, nobody was going over, like, the five-mile-an-hour speed limit, which Humvees won't even idle at. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. That's, that, that is the military I know and love. Yeah. Um, so... We we both we both like jokingly like hated that blimp. And the thing I never understood is like if I was if I was just some rando living in Baghdad like j- less than a mile outside of the base cuz it's the 
the people are living right there. Mm-hmm. If I was just some rando with like a bolt action car 98 that had been left in Iraq for God only knows how long, every single day I would get up, I would go have some coffee, sit on my roof and just take like one pot shot of that blimp. And then just go, just go about my day. Cause the military is not going to waste their time with one dude taking a pot shot at the blimp. Um, so one day I was, I was sitting in my, in my office or like in my, the, the area that I worked on weapons and my friend like kicks open the door and is like, the blimp is gone. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I go outside and the blimp is flying away. Um, <laughs> They had this multi-million dollar blimp, and the only thing they had keeping it tethered to the ground was the one tether that holds all of the control cables. <laughs> they didn't have, like, a second safety tether or anything, and that table, like, snapped, so it just started flying away. And about, like, five minutes later, they sent, they sent like, three Apaches after it, and they were trying to, like, force it to the ground with the Apaches. <laughs> they, they couldn't get to that to work, so eventually they just shot around through it, and it, it fell down. Landed on some poor dude's house... So he was just sitting in his house, and then suddenly it became completely black. <laughs> and he had to, like, struggle to get out of his house. And right as he got out, from what I understand, right as he got out from under this, this blimp that had collapsed on top of his house, the, um, the army was showing up in several trucks. And as soon as he saw the military trucks, he was like, Oh, no, no, this is mine now. You must pay me for this. <laughs> uh... he, just would, he wouldn't let them take it. He was just running around yelling at all the soldiers and was like, no, you can't take this. This is my blimp now. You must pay me. So they had to pay him like $5,000 to remove the blimp. <laughs> Dude, the the desire to get paid is so powerful. I just, it, it, it's the most American thing I think we brought to Iraq and, and Afghanistan. It's really, just the idea really that you is. should get your money from the government. Never do yep. it for free. Yep, exactly. I mean, I just remember we had, like, we got authorized to sign contracts because we had to, you know, run an entire FOB. And we signed a contract for gravel so we could gravel uh, the lot where we parked the vehicles and gravel around the living quarters so we wouldn't get, like, you know, covered in mud when it rained. Well, we signed a contract for, you know, let's say six tons of gravel. We think we had a... A, a, a truck scale of course not right mm-hmm. and so the first couple truckloads are 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 full loads the guys like this is i don't know two thousand pounds of gravel or whatever it is and like it looked about right you know the the napkin math says one truck it can hold this much yeah it's, it looks mm-hmm. it looks right and then the second day notice they're slightly different trucks and they're just a little bit smaller but I'm like, you know, whatever. It's Afghanistan, right? Precision isn't, isn't really their business, you know? Yeah. But then the next day, the trucks are even smaller. And, like, one of them's like a pickup. And they're, like, half full. And I'm like, guy, this is not the, the 13 truckloads we've contracted. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I gave it's you six truck. tons. It's, it's right there. Yeah, yeah. It's like he's like delivering it like a like an ATV with like a trailer. We're like, no, dude, no. This is not a truckload. Got a, got a freaking power wheel with like a little tiny gardening trailer attached to it. I, this is a truck. It's, one, I don't know what you're talking about. One truckload of gravel, sir. You could you could pay whenever you want. And, and we're just like, well, what do we? What recourse do we have? Like this dude, we we signed a contract with a guy who has one name. Like, he's going to disappear as soon as he gets paid, but, like, we can't not pay him or he'll 
probably shoot a mortar at us. Yeah. And so we're just like, uh, thanks for half a load of gravel. Like, we'll just never contract you again. But, of course, then he just changed his name to doing business as something else and probably got a yeah. contract at another fob. Oh, and we also, this, this, was, this was the most brazen hustle. And this, this reminded me that the next war, I will become a contractor. Um, mm -hmm. That generator we signed for, right, for our, our fob was supposed to be, again, I'm making these numbers up, like a thousand kilowatt generator, right? Yeah. Gets delivered, we hook it up, and we notice half the AC units keep going out. And we're like, is it the wiring? We're like, we're barely drawn on the generator until finally, after like three months, we get someone with an actual, like, I don't know, like a multimeter or something to test it. Turns out the generator is like, a hundred kilowatt generator like it's barely oh, it's a tenth of the capacity someone had found a full thousand kilowatt generator removed the plate and switched it with our hundred kilowatt generator again I, I have no idea if kilowatts or even how it's measured but it's like he switched the plates and then sent us the generator and to i mean we have some responsibility for this because I don't know what a big generator looks like relative to a small generator, but yeah. it was obviously not this. But I was like, wow, we have no idea who this person was who gave us this generator, but we definitely paid them like $600,000 for it. And we yeah. received a maybe $95,000 generator. Oh and so it, def it just taught me, I was like, you know what? Next war, you're going to see. Paul Contracting Incorporated. I, I will be right behind the frontline troops. Yep. Just being like, I'll solve your logistics problems for the for a price. For the right for the right <laughs> price, I will solve all your logistics problems. And by that, I mean I will take your money, and then you will never see me again. <laughs> Except will. for next week when I come back with a fake mustache. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you're looking for gravel, sir. Hmm. Yeah, yeah get get your two million and then book that flight to Dubai. That's yep. that. Oh and man, we had um, I went I went on a convoy at one point and I had to I was standing outside of the vehicle pulling security and um, the vehicle that I was driving was a uh, it was a Humvee contact truck. So it's basically it's a Humvee with like a like effectively a big camper shell with like roll roll up. Uh, shutters on the side of it that have um, like different tools in there. So there's like <laughs> welding stuff in there. There's a decent toolbox. There's like a couple spare tires. It's basically just like a little mechanic truck that mm -hmm. um, that uh, or a little mechanic box that you can just slap on the back of a of a Humvee. And for they had never painted it, so it was uh, it was just woodland camo. So I'm the only vehicle in the convoy that looks different. Mm. Um. Which I was like, oh great, yeah, put me in the put me in the kill truck. That's fine. Okay, <laughs> the uh, giant, highly visible target. Yeah, the the one that the one the only vehicle that looks different. Which we know that the the insurgents love just blowing up the one thing that looks different because that means it's important. Um, so uh, we had stopped somewhere. I'm pulling security, and a bunch of kids came up to the came up to the vehicle because it looks different. And there, this one kid is just going, Mister, Mister, football, football, and he's just telling me, I, I, I want a soccer ball. Give me the soccer ball. And because uh, some of the other convoy, because I was with an infantry convoy or a convoy, some of the other ones would bring like soccer or footballs or soccer balls and would hand those out to the, would hand those out to the kids or different stuff like that. And um, 
Mr. Mr. Football, football. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't have a football. And he he looks at me and he gets this look on his face that's like it's like used car it's like a used car salesman look. He's like, Mr. Look at this. And he points at the truck. Mr. Look at this. You have football. Give me football. <laughs> just like the vehicle's different. Of course you have a foot. It's gotta be filled with footballs that are just for me. And I'm like, I don't I don't have a football. I'm sorry. Mr. Look at this. Give to me the football. And I'm just like, <laughs> I started thinking, like, maybe there is a football in there that I just don't know about. <laughs> he, was so, he was so convincing. I'm, I'm just like, get, get out of here. Go away. <laughs> Mr. Give me the football. You have two Pepsi in there. I see you have two Pepsi. Give me one. And I'm just like, what? what? <laughs> Pepsi. Oh, my God. The like, kids... he, looked in the, he looked in the truck, and he saw that there were two Pepsis sitting in there. And he's like, just give me one Pepsi. I'm like, this he is going to be an amazing salesman at some point. <laughs> or, or an amazing con man, or both. Or, yeah, or that. Probably more likely that one. Yeah, I just... Oh, man, the kids... The kids begging. For us, it was pen or dollar. That was it. You, you They wanted pen, and they wanted dollar. And... Goodness. We would get like inundated with kids asking for a pen or dollar, right? I mean, I guess, it, right? You're a kid in Afghanistan, a bunch of people in, in crazy outfits show up and walk around your village for no reason. You're not doing anything else. Why not follow them around? And for exactly. months, we, I was just like, you will never give them a pen. You cannot, like, we cannot condition this behavior. Like, we, there can be no reward for this, yeah. right? And for months, we finally were able to get them to, to just, we cut down the number of kids by like two thirds, right? So there was far fewer kids and they were way less aggressive and we could actually like do business with the grownups. And I was so stoked that we had finally gotten this done. And then the brigade commander decides he wants to leave the wire for the first time in three months. And of course, of course, Paul's MPs are, are going to be the babysitters. I mean, <clears throat> escort. And so we're like, okay, like, okay, like, I, I, it, like, I'm an officer. I know how this goes. Like, this is, this is, this needs to go well, or else I will be assistant S4 for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, okay, you know, I had this elaborate, elaborate tactical plan. I'm like, we just have to keep people away from him. Like, if, if he wants to talk to somebody, try to pat him down first. Like, we, whatever we do, we have to just keep, we can't let people get too close, right? Because there had been some, like, stabbings where they just sort yeah. of, like, you know, gather gather around a bunch of people. Somebody pulls out a knife, and then they scatter. And uh, so that was, like, my biggest fear. Well, the brigade commander shows up, and the sergeant major, and we leave the wire, and he is he is not... 30 feet from our base when out comes a trash bag full of pens and this dude is like he's like the people giving away t-shirts at a minor league football game like just just throwing pens just a pen for you giving them to kids like tossing them everywhere leaving just a trail of pens and the kids are losing their mind and the more the more commotion there is, the more kids like pour out of this village. And I'm just watching three months of conditioning these kids to not oh, beg for pens just go geez. out the window. And he's they're like swarming him. He's like a celebrity. I'm just like, I'm 
I'm, please don't die. Just that's all I want. <laughs> I just want you to survive, right? This dude took off his helmet. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm like, is this what supervising a celebrity is like? You know, is this what I'm, happens? I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> I was tempted. I was close. Oh man! Oh that's, my god! That's that's brutal. It's so bad. Uh, one of one you you had said in one of your one of your videos that um, I hadn't even considered. Um, I think specifically it was the one about the. Um, um, I think specifically it was one about how we had the the sergeant major that was in charge that was in charge of our fob in Iraq got a soldier killed for basically for doing the exact same thing every single day. Mm. Um, and his, his gunner ended up getting shot for it. And I had never even, I'd never even considered that one or the, what you brought up of the, the military, it, the army has basically gotten to a point where now they don't want you to try anything new. If you try anything new and it fails, you'll be punished for it. So you might as well just try to control everything that you possibly can so that nobody dies of, like, not wearing a seatbelt or something. Mm -hmm. Because if a soldier gets shot by an insurgent, well, that's something that just happens every day. But if a soldier gets flung out of a vehicle because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, then as a commander, that is your fault. And I had never even actually thought of that before. Um... I yeah. thought that was a really that was a really interesting and a really interesting point that you'd brought up that I hadn't even really considered because um, like I like I I've said in several videos I never had a leadership position while I was in the military um, I was just the small arms repairman uh, so because because you had more of you had a leadership position it was much it was probably you you have a whole different insight on that stuff that I don't I I never necessarily got. Yeah, the army's incentives for their officers, like, and, and this is sort of my, it's not, I don't think it counts as a conspiracy theory, but like, I can't even remember if I talk about this in the videos, but the, the incentive structure of how like career NCOs and officers have to behave is just like, totally i think counterproductive to, to to fighting and winning wars and mm -hmm. it's sort of like what, what i talked about where like yeah there's absolutely this incentive to never try anything new because if something bad happens it'll kill your career right like there's yeah. there's only a narrow number of like it, things that can happen in your unit which are bad and your career can survive and like sadly like actually getting soldiers killed by the enemy is is not high on that list like you can actually have that happen and your career will be intact it is um, it is kind of like uh, to put it in kind of a meme way i feel like it's kind of like the the line from uh the dark knight where he's like oh yeah if i say a soldier or a truck filled with soldiers is going to get blown up tomorrow no one cares so it is kind of like the same thing where if you have if you have like 10 people in your unit get wiped out because they were on a convoy and they got lost, then whatever, that's something that just happens. But if you have a vehicle that drives off the road and they, they get flung out of the vehicle, then suddenly it's, that will just destroy your career forever. Right. Right. So the incentives for just like only doing like the, the symbolic version of innovation, like, taking PT belts on and off on runs being like, mm -hmm. okay, like that's, you haven't really like innovated. You haven't like changed the way soldiers train. You've just made a marginal uniform change and yeah. pass that off as dynamic leadership. 
But what's even kind of more screwed up is like with that incentive structure. So the other side, right, the the in the case of the Taliban, the greatest like prestige, right, the way to kind of get, per, I don't want to say promoted, but like the way to grow in authority in that organization is to get time fighting the infidels, right? Like the more direct mm -hmm. infidel fighting you do, the more you rise in the organization. And so what you would get is these deployment cycles, right? So a commander, a, a, a military unit shows up for a year, right? The fighting is done on an annual basis. It's cyclical along with the harvest. So literally a new army unit comes in, a bunch of new Taliban recruits come off of the harvest. They slowly get to the point where they fight each other, right? And then the fighting season dies down and if you're a commander and you're looking at your stats, you arrived at a very violent time and then the number of violent incidents in your sector diminished. And so you got to say, oh, look, I made real forward progress. Both sides go home. The military force redeploys. The Taliban go back to their farms and then a new unit comes in and the cycle repeats. You know, the problem is that the war never gets actually won, right? And soldiers, you know, pay the price. Soldiers get get killed. Um, but like the leadership gets these very good, you know, they get a deployment. They get a good OER that shows it by every key metric violent, you know, stability increased in violence yeah. reduced. And on the other side, the Taliban get a whole bunch of combat experience fighting the infidel and gaining prestige and rising in the ranks. And it's like everybody wins except except for the part where, where, where the war actually has to reach a conclusion, you yeah. know? And I think there's a lot of like, yeah, that sort of like careerism over actually like decisively winning the war. And it's not like I have some idea of how you could do it. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't have one either. When I remember when the whole, when everything was going on with the, the fall of, uh, of, um, Afghanistan, basically, I, I was of the opinion that it was basically a long time coming. It was just a matter of when was this going to happen? It was going to happen, but like, when was it going to happen? And yes, there are things we could have done better to, to exit. Um, and I do remember seeing on I do remember seeing online there were a lot of people that were saying like, "Oh, well, we just abandoned them." And my my opinion at the time, I, well, my opinion still is they had, they knew we were going to leave. They had twenty years to get this figured out, and they they just basically just didn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea that we abandon the Afghans is is nonsense, right? Yeah. For 20 years, almost every institution in the U.S. government, like, was doing everything they could to turn Afghanistan into, like, a secular democracy. But, yeah. like, ultimately, I, ultimately, I think the almost no Afghans supported that effort. They the worked with us to get paid. And a lot of yeah. them got paid at almost every level. I feel really bad for the people that weren't in now. I almost, this sounds kind of weird. 
I feel bad because some Afghans really did show up, really wanted yes. that like secular democracy. And like they really believed in it and they weren't in on what seems to be an almost countrywide grift um, yeah. to, to, you know, bilk the U.S. out of as much money as possible. Um, yeah. The, and I feel bad. I, I feel bad for them. Right. Like they they got the raw steal of, yeah. out of all this. The the things the things that I've that I noticed specific I was never deployed to Afghanistan. I did a lot of like reading up on it. Um I've I've done a lot of research on like what was going on there. Um just like in terms of basically every country that has invaded it, I've done a lot of like research on that stuff because I find military history very, very fascinating. Um and the two things that I I specifically noticed was one that the majority of people who are or who were motivated in Afghanistan joined the Taliban. Mm -hmm. So the majority of people that were like, yeah, I want to change things. I want stuff to be different. They, they almost all of them joined the Taliban because it was, it was in their mind, it's the winning side. And because they have a much more, I hesitate to say tribal, but because they have a much more familial, um, structure there it definitely is more of well do i trust these weird white dudes that look exactly like the russians that were here you know 30 years ago or do i trust my cousin who says that the taliban is the is the better one well i'm going to trust my cousin then yeah um it was that and then it's also the fact that i i it's also the fact that Afghanistan, the, the people of Afghanistan really have no national identity. They don't think of themselves as, like, the people in the U.S. think of themselves as U.S. citizens and then maybe, you know, like, citizens of a state or U.S. citizens and then members of their community. The people of Afghanistan think of themselves as the members of this specific tribe, and that's pretty much it. <laughs> And it's really hard, at least from what I notice, it's very hard for it's very hard to get a group of people to want democracy when they don't even think of themselves as part of a country. Yeah, yeah. I mean I I think I think that's one of the things that like the US I mean, I don't even want to say screwed up. But like was never going, never had a chance to win because like ultimately, you've got to if if you want to if you want to get the people of Afghanistan to do something like you can't sit there and be like, okay, there's this totally separate power structure that nobody knows anything about where there's this government in Kabul and they have like representatives down at your state and local level, and it's like. They're like, dude, we have a way of running things and we've run it this yeah. way, you know, thousands of years. And like, we're not going to change it in 20 years because some rando dudes basically asked us to. Yeah. And it's I, just like, of course, like when you say it, when you think about it, you're like, of course, like, of course, the people that were willing to work with the tribal leadership was always going to come out on top. Yeah. The, um, one of one of my friends that was that was deployed to Afghanistan was talking about how they basically they were in a in a separate province. I forget exactly where it was, but they were in a separate province quite far away from uh from Kabul. 
And it was basically like, oh, well, we have to do, you guys have to do, like, these are the laws now. You have to do this. And it, the response was basically like, well, why? That's Kabul. We're here. What, are the, what do we have to do with them? <laughs> like, that, that, what they say doesn't matter because they're not out here doing the, doing, like, the farming that we're doing. Yeah, and it's like, that's, I mean, that's why people are like, oh, the Taliban runs the country now. And I'm like, the Taliban probably runs Kabul. And they probably have, like, deals with the other tribal leadership in these areas. Mm -hmm. But, like, I am not convinced that they run things in the way that we think of a government runs a country. Yeah. Like, I think they sit atop a network of, like, tribal agreements where all the, the, the tribal and warlord leaders are just like, okay, you guys can sit in Kabul and you guys can staff the embassies. In exchange, we want XYZ and ABC. Yeah. I feel like that is probably that's probably what's going on there. They they have a they must have agreements with uh the different tribal leaders, and it's the, the agreements probably are along the lines of like you do this and we'll do this and then we'll just leave you alone. Right, right. Something something akin to like a feudal society where it's just like yeah. as long as you as long as you pay your tribute or taxes every so often and you mm -hmm. back us up when we come calling like you can you can run your your people group your sub-tribe your ethnicity however however you want and but, again yeah. it's like whatever problems we have with it as americans and and in a from a secular democracy like that's the way it's been for thousands of years there like who yeah, who are we to tell them to do it different exactly all right man well we are at like an hour 45 Okay. We're, we're approaching we're approaching Joe Rogan experience length here. Yeah. Um this has been awesome, dude. I, this has been so much fun. Yeah, I'm glad I'm uh you know, I was happy to be here, happy to talk with you about just different random stuff. I always I always really enjoy just like talking with other other veterans about uh it's like the stuff they the stuff that we did while we were in the military and just how how things went. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's uh it's great, man. There's, there's, and you know, there's, there's not a ton of us, right? Like veteran yeah. content creators, you know, so it's good to, I think it's, I think it's good to rep it and it's good to, uh, to connect. Yep, for sure. All right. So that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Zach, you are on Twitch as Zach Hazard. Yes. Um, Mike Burned Fire, you're also on YouTube, right? Also a Zach Hazard? Yes, I have I do have my own separate YouTube channel. Um pretty much it I basically just use it as a repository for my for my Twitch streams. Um I'm looking at doing more stuff with it, but yeah. All right, cool. So yeah, definitely be sure to check him out and uh make sure you guys hit subscribe on the podcast. And uh yeah, until next time, we'll see you guys later.